Hello, my name is Vance Need, and welcome to another episode of the PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to another called The Postscript. Now, on that podcast, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe each week will speak with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. Here on this podcast, the PS Plus, we'll take a look at some of those topics that are being discussed and we'll dive in just a bit deeper. Now, in our last few episodes, we've been taking a look at the issue of the King James Bible, and we're going to continue that discussion today. So, let's do this thing. So before we jump into today's content, let's take a couple of moments to review where it is that we've been. And if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time, you know that we do a lot of review, but that's because we want to make sure that we're tracking along with the information that we have before we introduce new information. The past few episodes have taken a look at what we've been calling the faith-based view of preservation versus a critical view of preservation. Faith-based view being that we believe by faith, according to Scripture, that God has preserved His Word. And we've contrasted that with a critical view that says God's Word was preserved in the original writings, but of course we no longer have access to those writings. Now, in line with that critical view, one thing that we saw last time, and if you'll remember, was a bit confusing to me, is a line of logic that said that today's translations aren't perfect, they're not inspired, they're not inerrant, but yet we can trust those translations. And the reasons given is because the text is trustworthy, not through God preserving the text, but through the study of qualified individuals utilizing man-made processes of textual criticism. And it's that issue of textual criticism that we want to take a look at today. So as a working definition, we can define textual criticism as the study of manuscripts or printings to determine the original or most authoritative form of a text. Now, in order not to mischaracterize this position, which is one thing that I would hate to do, I do want to provide a more robust definition of textual criticism from Alexander Souter, who was a professor of theology for over 40 years and taught Latin, Greek, early church history, as well as New Testament exegesis. And in his book, The Text and Canon of the New Testament, he writes this, Textual criticism seeks by the exercise of knowledge and trained judgment to restore the very words of some original document which is perished and survives only in copies, complete or incomplete, accurate or inaccurate, ancient or modern. If we possessed the 27 documents now composing our New Testament exactly in the form in which they are dictated or written by their original authors, there would be no textual criticism of the New Testament. The original documents, however, have long perished, and we have to make the best of the copies which have survived by howsoever many removed they may be distant from their ultimate originals. So again, from Souter's definition, what we can see are a couple of things very clearly. The first is that textual criticism becomes the means by which Scripture is preserved under this view, what we would call a critical view. Also, instead of a received text, a text that God has preserved and has been providentially protected and kept from corruption, passed down from generation to generation, it's up to us to restore the text or to reconstruct the text using the principles of textual criticism. 
Now, as it relates to this process, the process or the rules by which textual criticism is practiced, we're going to talk about a couple of men over the course of this series. But the first we're going to mention is Johann Jacob Griesbach. Now, Griesbach was a professor of New Testament at the University of Jena in Germany and is regarded as one of the founding fathers of modern textual criticism of the Bible. In fact, he had his hand in publishing a Greek text that was one of the first deviation from the classic text or the received text known as the Textus Receptus. Now, if that word in and of itself sounds a little bit weird, sit tight. We'll come back to words like Textus Receptus and critical text. But for the time being, just know that Griesbach had a hand in laying the foundation for textual criticism. Now, one of the things that Griesbach is most famous for is compiling 15 rules as it relates to textual criticism, how it is that an individual chooses one manuscript over another manuscript in the translation process. Now, to that end, we're going to take a look at a couple of these rules that Griesbach developed so that we can have a better understanding of how it is that textual critics go about doing their job. Okay, so let's take a look at our first rule. The shorter reading, if not wholly lacking the support of older and weighty witnesses, is to be preferred over the more verbose, or the shorter reading is better versus the longer reading as it relates to manuscripts. Now, the reason that Griesbach gives for this is that, quote, scribes were much more prone to add than to omit. They hardly ever leave out anything on purpose, but they added much. He goes on to say, quote, it is true indeed that some things fell out by accident, but likewise, not a few things allowed in by the scribes through errors of the eye, ear, memory, imagination, and judgment have been added to the text. So the idea here is that scribes were prone to error, and over time, the text got longer and longer because they were adding and adding to it. And so the solution to this is we're going to prefer the shorter reading versus the longer reading. Okay, let's take a look at another one. The more difficult and more obscure reading is preferable to that in which everything is so plain and free of problems that every scribe is easily able to understand it. So in other words, the more difficult reading is preferable to the easier reading. Now, according to Griesbach, this is because the scribes were oftentimes unlearned men and would have been confused by the more complicated readings. And so for that reason, the difficult reading is probably the correct reading. Okay, here's another one. The more unusual reading is preferable to that which constitutes nothing unusual. And according to Griesbach, quote, Therefore, rare words, or those at least in meaning, rare usages, phrases, and verbal constructions less in use than the trite ones, should be preferred over the more common. Surely, the scribes seized eagerly on the more customary instead of the more exquisite. And here the idea, what Griesbach is saying here, is that, is that the scribes are going to choose language and words that are more pedestrian and less... and le- uh, I don't know. I feel like I just used up like my only big word, pedestrian. It's like it's like one per podcast. Uh, l- more pedestrian, less fancy. There we go. Now let's take a look at a couple of others in more rapid succession. 
the reading that in comparison with others produces a sense fitted to the support of piety, especially monastic, is suspect. Preferable to others is the reading for which the meaning is apparently quite false, but which in fact, after thorough examination, is discovered to be true. Among many readings in one place, that reading is rightly considered suspect that manifestly gives the dogmas of the Orthodox better than the others. So we could continue taking a look at at more of these canons of textual criticism, but I want to stop right here and just reflect on some of the things that we've seen so far, because I'm noticing a couple of themes that are rising to the top. The first is, according to this, what we would call critical view, there is absolutely no way to be sure that the words that we have are the very words of God without a scientific process whereby we reconstruct the text. I think that's a theme that we're seeing in these various canons. And the other is that there seems to be a high degree of subjectivity as far as which readings are preferable. And a lot of that is based off of Griesbach's opinion that the scribes must have screwed something up, whether it's because of copying errors, or they added to the text, or they synthesized it because they weren't the smart ones. Like, there's a lot of subjectivity that I'm seeing, and I will fully admit to you that uh, I I am just I'm just a humble, uh, uh, averaged IQ man that went to art school, and the last math class I took was in high school, called Math of Money. <laughs> which I really should have paid attention to because it actually was quite useful. It was like, you know, calculating APR rates and how to balance your checkbook. So that's the that's the highest level of education that I have as far as, you know, things that are, I don't know, useful in adulting. So I'm definitely lacking in a lot of smarts. But man, it just it just seems like this is something that is that is so subjective that it's not nearly as scientific as sometimes we perceive it to be. Now, I think one thing that would be helpful is taking a look at what are kind of the end results and the fruit of textual criticism. And that's exactly what our subject for next time is going to be. So guys, as always, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this episode of the PS Plus. If you are more curious about this subject, about the King James Bible and why we hold to it as our standard for English speaking people, well, you're in luck because enrollment is now open for the spring semester of LFBI and being offered is our manuscript evidence class. You want to take that as taught by Pastor Alan Shelby, who also did postscript episodes 100 through 102 which of course you also should go back and listen to. I hope today was helpful for you and I hope to talk to you next time. Take care.